This Sunday, the Christensen's Backyard Family Barbecue turns into a satanic panic when Lucifer decides to crash it. Lucifer, did you change the music? Yeah, I added some subliminal messages. Doesn't it just pop? Well, I can't understand it now. Well, that's because I had to break your CD player so you could play it backwards now. It's the only way to listen to my music. You'll laugh as Peter loses his religion with this wacky neighbor's wacky hijinks. Did you sacrifice another goat on my grill? It took forever to get the smell out last time. Oh, relax. It wasn't a goat this time. It was your cat, Sparky. But it all comes to a head when Lucifer brings his apple brown Betty to the cookout. The last time you made this, we got kicked out of that botanical garden. Did I do that? It's a party straight from hell this week on I Love Lucifer, Sunday, January 1st at midnight, right after According to Carl. These have been synonyms for the word rampart with Ruben. <laughs> yes. Welcome to synonym roll with Ruben and the boys. Synonym roll? <laughs> is, is, this a, is this a critical role that spinoff? Was, that was an amazing pun and an amazing parody. That was like three layers deep. Yeah. yeah I, I there was a lot it. to that. Yeah. Thank you. Oh, my goodness. So Don't you hate when people eat each other? Yep. It happens all the time. Oh, it I does. see. You were trying to make a segue. Uh, yeah, I'm trying yeah. to segue us into the content today. Yeah. <laughs> segue from nowhere. Welcome, everybody, to Two Towns Over, the 17th best true crime podcast in the United Arab Emirates. I am Don. I'm Ruben. I'm trying to figure out what name to be. I'm Mr. Bounce. There you go. How do you guys feel about rabbits? Modern rabbit? Mm, that's actually not bad. Modern rabbit is pretty good. Although it's too close to your one, I think. Mm, not necessarily. Yeah. Modern ribbit. That's pretty See, if you too. didn't want to stick with, you know, because you are a brown man, you could be modern Mothman. Yeah, but that's it's way too be, close it's to Madam Mothra. Too. Oh, shit, it is too. I don't know who Madam Mothra is. I don't it's, see, it's got to be an R. So yeah. the, the modern stays because Mainer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah. the R, mm-hmm. yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, so um, see, this is why I was trying to segue us into the today's story because usually we just, much like the inventor of the segue, segue ourselves right off cliffs. Uh-huh. <laughs> but unfortunately, your segue came out of nowhere, <laughs> and I'm sitting there going, "What the fuck?" I said synonym roll. What the hell has that got to do with eating people? But anyways, <laughs> in case Josh is delightfully brilliant, disjointed, yes, his brilliant segue did not get you there. Uh, we are going to be talking about cannibals again today. Uh, we've done it before with the whale ship Essex, and um, kind of when we talked about the Wendigo and the Swift Runner story. But uh, got an urban legend today called the Accidental Cannibals, and uh, then we're going to discuss the I don't know if you, well horrific, but with a upbeat at the end story of the uh, rug, uh, Uruguayan rugby team. Mm. Um, who crash landed in the Alps in the 1970s. So I really like that phrase that you just said, uh, the accidental cannibals. Yeah. Uh, because very few intentional cannibals. True. Well, very, very few. You know, e- even even Dahmer wasn't necessarily like 
on purpose. Like he didn't he didn't like he just he wanted to keep people with him forever. Yeah, but he did it he's he did learn how to season though, and at that point that's on purpose. <laughs> I mean he just found out that he liked it, so Right. No accounting for taste. Riddle. Modern Maybe that's Riddler. what we can do. Maybe we can Modern go to like Riddler's a good. write it down. We write can go to a uh, like cannibal aisle and we can try it for ourselves. A, a cannibal aisle? Yeah. Oh, one of the islands. Yeah. Uh, okay. Island might have been better because I'm yeah. picturing like Winn Dixie. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like I, I've been to Winn Dixie recently and I have not seen that aisle. Yeah. Like, just, <laughs> it's well hidden. You got to look for lady fingers and then <laughs> yeah. It's it's like one of those smaller sections, like on yeah. an end cap. You know, it's like one of those, like you know, uh, the, what is it, platform nine and three quarters? Yeah, you have to get just right. You, you have to know right where yeah, it is. Yeah, and go through to that aisle. But uh, so let's go ahead and we'll get started because this is a long. It's going to be a long episode. Um, so the legend of the accidental cannibals, an American couple, recent immigrants from Mexico, received a package sent from the old country. It contained a beautiful jar. They were not sure what, what it was and oh, saw look at no this package n- from the old country. What a beautiful jar. Mexico. Fuck. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I did. <laughs> <laughs> it's different when the, the place is, is a brown person. It sounds racist when you do their accent. <laughs> oh, look at these from the old country. <laughs> what a beautiful jar. Okay. <laughs> I can't do a Mexican accent. You did fairly good there. I don't think I did. I don't think we're qualified to say that, actually. Speedy Gonzalez. Oh, that's fair. I see. That's Let's m- move on. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I don't. It's whatever. If I'm well, going to do a Japanese accent and a Russian one, I'm going to well, try Mexican, too. I will say, uh, with this script. Nobody can tell what I am anyway. There's a lot of Hispanic names in this episode. So. I can say they're wor- like words. In Spanish and an accent, but I cannot keep it up. Yeah. Right. Um, I can't improv it. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. They were not sure what was in the jar and saw no note inside, but checking the return address, they saw that it had been sent from the town in which the husband's mother lived. From Mexico. They are in America. Okay. So, the mother was well known as a wonderful and inventive cook and often would send her family her latest creations. Opening the jar, the couple found it to be filled with a powder. Assuming to be a new mix of spices from their mother, they tried a touch of it on the tip of their tongue and found it to be bland. Even so, they trusted the judgment and tried it in a number of items until finally discovering that it worked wonderfully as a tenderizer in taco meat. They had a big barbecue and the tacos were very popular with friends and family. It wasn't until that night when cleaning up, the husband found a small card that had been lost in the wrapping the jar came in. Fuck, I really could go for some tacos. Like, I right fucking now. can't. I can't stop thinking about tacos. <laughs> well, opening the I card. that audio. <laughs> <laughs> opening the card, the man found a short note in poor English. So sorry your mother has died. We send you her cremations in this jar and our blessings. That has not hindered my appetite for tacos. <laughs> it sure hasn't. Not a, not a bit. Not even a little. I'm going to DoorDash Taco Bell right now. <laughs> The man and his wife had an intense discussion. They couldn't tell everyone what happened. That would mean shame at the least and hatred or even prison at the worst. So they decided to keep it quiet. But what would they do when others asked for more tacos or, by blessed virgin, the recipe? There was no choice. They had to keep it a secret and, if they must, make more of the tacos. 
The tacos became immensely popular. That's no. <laughs> That's the part. That point. This right now is when I don't believe the rest of this. <laughs> well, uh, the See, these are my favorite stories, though. Are the like, yeah. oh, everybody accidentally ate people. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's good, but like, uh, listen, if if you okay, ashes are ashes are ashes. You could burn dust, like, say a pig dust to dust to dust, or like some wood, or like any fucking thing else other than. Using your grandmother to season these. To also, if you think it's bland, just put the shit that you used to put in there. No, no, no. It was they started using it as tenderizer. Yeah, because oh, ground well, then beef buy is a tenderizer. Because so you're not using taco meat. I mean, unless they're doing like steaks, then okay. Oh, steak but, tacos. Oh, yeah. fuck. I'm hungry. So the tacos became immensely popular. <laughs> so much so that eventually the couple had to go in secret and get more of their special ingredient. But the secrecy paid off. They turned their tacos into a successful business. You probably have one in your town. It's called Taco Bell. Welcome to Taco Taco Hell. Literally (laughs) just said I'm going to DoorDash Taco Bell right now. So You're right, though. Josh and I have a theory about Taco Bell. It is thus. Taco Bell is one of the healthiest food chains considerably. And by healthiest food chains, I do not mean that they are healthy. Don't mistake that. No, we mean they're healthy compared to McDonald's. And Burger King and shit. They're like consistently at the top of the list. And the reason why is because of stories like that and because of stories about how you're going to shit after you eat them. Because if they actually put the stuff in there that would make you poop like you think you're going to poop, like it, and like they would make people sick and stuff. They would get they in would, so much trouble because they already have their reputation for it, they right? They would never be able to open another one, and the ones around you would close in a day and a half. Therefore, Taco Bell actually takes the largest efforts to make sure that their food does not give you horrific shits. I've never had an issue with Taco Bell. Exactly. 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 <laughs> this is what we're getting at. The only time Taco Bell has bothered me, and a lot of time, it, most of the time, it has to do with their lettuce. If you're like, yeah, oh, lettuce, lettuce is, lettuce is finicky. Mm-hmm. Yeah. To mm-hmm. be fair, I've had lettuce from them before that tasted like cabbage. It might have been. It might have been cabbage. I used to work with lettuce for a living, actually. Also, if you do, if I taught. Like, I was a professional salad tosser. If mm. you're nice, if you're like the kind of person who's like, I don't like tossing salads. That's okay. You don't have to. That's not your job. But. <laughs> But again, if, if you show up with your ghost strokes pass, Josh will toss your salad for twenty percent off. Mm-hmm. You get a Caesar used, for like, like I said, I used to do it for a living. I had to wear an arm length glove. Just send, just put in the code boo forty. <laughs> <laughs> but if you're the type of person who does like every time I eat Taco Bell, I have to poop. Drink water with it next time. See what happens. Yeah, because that soda will fuck you. Oh yeah. All right, so the main story today is we are going to be discussing the Old Christians Club rugby team. Modern rugby? Mm-hmm. Mm, no, mm. that's a bad one. That's a bad one. Send us R words. Send us like any R, R words. Two syllables you do preferably. realize that this won't be aired for another two weeks. Okay, I'm not. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Might not might not find one before then. Okay. If I find one before then, I'm sorry, but I will take yours into I'll, consideration. I'm, I'm going to tell the people in the Discord to do it right now. Do it right Send now. Send us R words. Two, two syllables. Two, maybe three. Probably two. I'm I'm just gonna t- I'm just gonna crowdsource our words, just all our words. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Oh, shit! Uh, look up the lyrics to a song by Spose called "All Rs." It's a song where all the lyrics begin with the letter R. This is what I mean about segueing right off a cliff. Yeah, 
All right, so members of the Amateur Old Christians Club Rugby Union team from Montevideo, Uruguay, were scheduled to play a match against the Old Boys Club, an English rugby team in Santiago, Chile. Club president Daniel Juan chartered a Uruguayan Air Force twin turboprop to fly the team over the Andes to Santiago. The aircraft carried 40 passengers and five crew members. Colonel Julio Cesar Ferradas, or Ferradas, was, I'm going to offend a lot of Latino people. I'm sorry. But, um, it's, but, as long as you're trying your best. Yeah. Um, I, think, I think they'll be okay with it. You know what? That's fair. Anytime we do shit like that on the show, I'm always like, you know what? We are not disrespectful. Like, put put your best foot forward on these do, pronunciations. We're trying. Mm. And if we can't get it, then it's okay. We don't speak your language. I'm sorry. So We're anyway. definitely not going to get the intricacies of like the accent yeah. required to say some of these words. So we're going to say the, the bastardized American versions of them, go. and we're sorry. And you can say the bastardized, whatever the fuck you are, versions of our names, and we're not going to get bent out of shape about it, okay? Cool it. All right. So Colonel Ferritus, or yeah, Ferritus, was an experienced Air Force pilot who had a total of 5,117 flying hours. He was accompanied by co-pilot Lieutenant Colonel Dante Hector Laguara. Uh, there were 10 extra seats, and the team members invited a few friends and family members to accompany them. When someone canceled at the last minute, Grazella Mariani bought the seat so she could attend her oldest daughter's wedding. Now, the aircraft departed Carrasco International Airport on October 12, 1972, but a storm front over the Andes forced them to stop overnight in Mendoza, Argentina. Now, although there is a direct route from Mendoza to Santiago, about 120 miles, the high mountains require an altitude of 25,000 to 26,000 feet, which was very close to the plane's maximum operational ceiling of 28,000 feet. Given that the aircraft was fully loaded, this route would have required the pilot to carefully calculate fuel consumption and to avoid the mountains. Instead, it was customary for this type of aircraft to fly a longer 370-mile, 90-minute U-shaped route from Mendoza south to Malagu using the A-7 airway, known today as uh, the UW-44. So it's South America, yeah? Yeah. There's actually, there's a place in, um, somewhere in Europe, I believe, maybe Africa? It has a really similar thing where, like, the mountains prevent any flight paths from going there. Yeah. So all of the, the flight paths there, like, there's only one plane that comes in and out of, like, the one opening that's a reasonable place to fly through these mountains. Right. Well, also another issue is you got to remember this is Southern Hemisphere. Mm-hmm. So October, that's spring. Yeah. For them. And so you got the warm spring air and then these mountains. Right. So it causes massive, like, cyclonic storms yeah. over the mountains. So it makes it more dangerous to fly. Rascal. Um, Ooh, rascal's good. I, I love this story that's gonna that we know we already know, we have already established is leading to cannibalism. Right. And then just randomly throughout Different R words that might be good for Ruben's <laughs> gamer, gamer tag. tag. <laughs> and I am still listening to this. I am still here. Like, <laughs> so the weather on October 13th also affected the flight. On that morning, conditions over the Andes had not improved, but changes were expected by the early afternoon. The pilot waited and took off at 2.18 p.m. on Friday the 13th, uh, Friday, October 13th from Mendoza. 
He flew south from... I, I might not even look for any more. That's fucking good. <laughs> Modern Rascal? Yeah. Yeah, but it makes me think of two things that you might not like as much. What's that? Uh, Rascal Flats. Mm, I'm okay with Rascal Flats. Okay, 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 okay. Life is a highway. Life is a um, highway. And I'm going to drive it all night long, Josh. Also, Rascal Scooters. <laughs> rascal Scooters are fine with me. See, okay. I show my age. I thought Little Rascals. That's what I was oh, going for. Oh, true. Yeah. Yeah, because yeah, I'm I just a little rascal. I loved Little Rascals when I was a kid. I watched that movie so many uh, times. Where the hell movie. am I? Okay. We were talking about Little Rascals. Again. Yeah. Uh, Josh was talking <laughs> about how it, uh, mountains in South yeah. America don't let you fly there sometimes. So, uh, yeah. So, we flew south from Mendoza towards Mal- Mal- Malargu. I don't know how to pronounce the U with the umlauts. Radio, uh, the radio beacon at flight level 180, which is 18,000 feet. I think it's uh? 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 I'm pretty sure. Malaga. That's that sound that they make in Home Improvement. Uh, uh. So this is Malaga. Malargoe. Malagoe. 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 Sorry. Um. <laughs> it is a mighty jungle. Yeah. So even though it's mountains. So he flew. Lions so- do sleep tonight. <laughs> So he flew south from Mendoza to Malagre, a uh, radio beacon at 18,000 feet. La, La Guara radioed, oh my God, radioed Just, the Malagre airport with the position and told them that they would reach 8,251 foot high Planchin Pass at 321. Now, Planchin Pass is the air traffic control handoff point from one side of the Andes to the other, which controllers uh, in Mendoza transferring are with controllers in Mendoza transferring flight tracking duties over to Pad Pudahuel Air Traffic Control in Santiago, Chile. Once across the mountains in Chile, south of Curacao, the uh, aircraft was supposed to turn north to initiate a descent into um, Paduel Airport in Santiago. All I got to say is, God bless the broken road that led me straight to you. So pilot Faridas had flown across the Andes 29 times previously. On this flight, he was training co-pilot LaGuara, who was at the controls. As they flew through the Andes, clouds obscured the mountains. The aircraft was four years old and had 792 airframe hours. The aircraft was regarded by some pilots as underpowered and had been nicknamed by them as the lead sled. That's pretty good. That's great, actually. That's a great gamer tag. It's an awesome gamer tag. <laughs> so, given the cloud cover, the pilots were it's flying. It's literally one letter off from mine. Yeah. So, uh, the pilots were flying under what is called instrument meteorological conditions at an altitude of 18,000 feet. Meteorological conditions is my new indie band name. <laughs> but Ooh, so, what that means good. is that they could not use any kind of, they had to be flying just with instruments. They could not see anything outside the windows. Yeah. Um, so while some... We're flying blind. Yeah. Literally. That's how that works. Yeah. While some reports state that the pilot incorrectly estimated his position using dead reckoning, the pilot was relying on radio navigation. The aircraft's instruments displayed, the, displayed to the pilot a digital reading of the distance to the next radio beacon in Curacao. At Planchin Pass, the aircraft still had to travel 60 to 70, or I'm sorry, 37 to 43 miles to reach Curacao. Regardless, at 3.21 p.m., shortly after transiting the pass... I like how you know how to pronounce Curacao because it's booze. (laughs) 
I might be actually be pronouncing it wrong. I'm just going with that. No, no I'm pretty it, sure that's, that's exactly it. it. Uh, LaGuara con- contacted Santiago and notified air traffic controllers that he expected to reach Curacao a minute later. The flight time from the pass to Curacao is from the pass to Curacao is normally 11 minutes, but only three minutes later, the pilot told Santiago that they were passing Curacao and turning north. He requested permission from air traffic control to descend. The controller in Santiago, unaware the flight was still over the Andes, authorized him to descend to 11,000 feet. Later analysis of their flight path found the pilot had not only turned too early, but turned to on a heading of 014 degrees when he should have turned to 030. As the aircraft descended, severe turbulence... How does your How do your instruments fuck up that bad? How does a pilot fuck up that? What bad? year? Seventy-two, I think. Oh, okay. So yeah, it's, we're not looking at like early nineteen hundreds aircrafts. So I was gonna say that they were pretty primitive at that point compared to what we have now, but seventies uh, we had like we're using some of the same shit. Yeah. Now. Mm-hmm. So as the aircraft ascended, severe turbulence. Which is fine. Okay, old technology sometimes is the best. Yes. Or sometimes it ain't. Listen. <laughs> We record the show on an analog mixer right now. I love now. that shit, like, dude. It's, it's fine. But not quite right. So, uh, severe turbulence tossed the aircraft up and down. What'd you what? say about analogy? <laughs> <laughs> Modern analog. Yeah, we got Digi over shit, there. That that'd be so good if I didn't, wasn't <laughs> stuck on this Change your first name to Adam. Andrew. <laughs> so, the rugby. Andrew Rubin. Uh, cause, okay, so yeah. You could be Black Adam. Oh, shit. <laughs> <laughs> So Nando Parado, <laughs> one of the passengers, recalled hitting a downdraft, causing the plane to drop several hundred feet out of the clouds. The rugby players joked about the turbulence at first until some passengers saw that the aircraft was awfully close to the mountain. Okay, it says that they joked about the turbulence at first, but have you ever been on a plane when it hit like some really nasty turbulence? Yeah. You know how everyone on the plane gives that like really nervous laugh, like ha ah, ha, ah, and then everyone's like looking around each other, like, ah, 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 we might die. <laughs> That's definitely the kind of joking about the turbulence that they were doing. So he said that was probably the moment when the pilot saw the black ridge rising dead ahead. Now Roberta Canessa oh? later said. <laughs> That he thought the pilot turned north too soon and began... It was was actually just Reuben laying on his back (laughs) over there. Uh, Began to descend to Santiago (laughs) while the aircraft was still high in the Andes. Then he began... high in the Andes. (laughs) Then he began to climb until the plane was nearly vertical and it began to stall and shake. The aircraft ground elision alarm sounded, alarming all of the passengers. Now, the pilot applied maximum power in an attempt to gain altitude. Witness accounts and evidence at the scene indicated that the plane struck the mountain either two or three times. The pilot was able to to bring the aircraft nose over the ridge, but at 3.34 p.m., the lower part of the tail cone may have clipped the ridge at 13,800 feet. The next collision severed the right wing. Some evidence indicates it was thrown back with such force that it tore off the vertical stabilizer and the tail cone. When the tail cone was detached, it took with it the rear portion of the fuselage, including two rows of seats in the rear section of the passenger cabin. Hey, quick question. What? 
We talk about fuselages all the time. I get that it's the place where you keep the fuel in an aircraft. No, fuselage is basically the the body of the plane. It's called uh, a fuselage. Why? I don't know. I didn't make planes. I'm going to look it up because I want to know now. <laughs> I feel like fuselage is just the, a word we use all the time that I've never been able to picture. Yeah, it's it's the area where you sit on the plane. Mm-hmm. Um, it's The root word is a French word for spindle. That makes it no clearer. A spindle is what you, like, uh, you remember uh, Sleeping Beauty? Yeah. A spindle is what thread goes onto when you make it. So it's like a big fucking circular thing. a spool? Basically, but sharper. Okay. I think. How does that? Fuck, now I got to look up spindle because I can't remember. So when the tail cone was detached, it took with it the rear portion of the fuselage, including two rows of seats in the rear section of the passenger cabin. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's a rod used for spinning and then winding natural fiber. It looks kind of like a top. Okay. Yeah, I was right. It's the Sleeping Beauty thing. Okay. Also, uh, uh, Ogede Khan also suggested Modern Rogue. Modern Rogue, I would, but it's... It's, just, it's already a thing. I yeah. respect it's them a stolen. little bit. Yeah. At least when I was watching them. I don't know what they're up to now. Yeah, yeah, we're not endorsing. They're, they're fine, though, I guess. I haven't seen anything bad about them. Oh, he also said... Rackamode? Spell it. R-A-C-C-O-M-M-O. Oh, that's just what I needed. Like, every time. All right. So, when the tail cone detached, it took with it the rear portion of the fuselage, including two rows of seats in the rear section of the passenger cabin, the galley, the baggage hold, the vertical stabilizer, and the horizontal stabilizers, leaving a gaping hole in the rear of the fuselage. Three passengers, the navigator and the steward, were lost with the tail section. Jesus Christ. Three passengers, navigator, and the steward? Steward. Damn. The aircraft continued forward. And How many were on it? Sorry? There was 40 passengers and five crew members. So 45 minus, we're already down four. Yeah. Shit. No, we're down five. No, we're down five already. Yeah. Because yeah, there so was three passengers, the navigator, and the steward. Oh, shit. I forgot about the navigator. So the aircraft continued forward and upward another 660 feet for a few more seconds when the left wing struck an outcropping at 14,400 feet, tearing off the wing. One of the propellers sliced through the fuselage as the wing it was attached to was severed. Two more passengers fell out of the open rear of the fuselage. Damn. 38. Yeah. So the front portion of the fuselage flew straight through the air before sliding down a steep glacier at 220 miles an hour. Holy fuck, bud. Yeah, like, a, like a high-speed toboggan and descended about 2,379 feet. They signed up for rugby, not sledding. Yeah. When the fuselage collided... <laughs> it's, it's called with, the lead sled. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. When the fuselage collided with the snowbank, the seats were torn At from their base. At least it's not the Jamaican team. Yeah. <laughs> Are we old? Yes. 50 years is long enough to make jokes about this, right? Uh-huh. Yeah. Okay, cool. So uh, the seats were torn from their base and thrown against the forward bulkhead uh, and each other. The impact crushed the cockpit with the two pilots inside, killing Faradas immediately. It's 37 and a half. The official yep. investigation concluded that the crash was caused by controlled flight into terrain due to pilot error. Now, the plane fuselage came to rest on a glacier at an elevation of 11,710 feet. Damn. The unnamed glacier, which would later be known as Glacier de las Lagrimas, or the Glacier of Tears, is between Mount Cisne- 
NATO at 14,040 feet high and Vulcan Tin... Yeah. Vulcan Tinguirica. T-I-N-G-U-I-R-I-R-I-C-A. Yep. Yeah. Tinguirica? It's between two mountains, y'all. It's in between two mountains, y'all. Straddling the remote mountainous border between Chile and Argentina. It is south of the 15,280-foot-high Mount Silar, the mountain they later climbed and when Nando Parado named after his father, the aircraft was 50 miles east of its planned route. Of the 45 people on the aircraft, three passengers and two crew members of the tail section were killed when it broke apart. A few seconds later, Daniel Shaw and Carlos Valletta fell out of the rear fuselage. Valletta survived his fall, but stumbled down the snow-covered glacier, fell into deep snow, and was asphyxiated. Wow. Damn. His body was found by fellow passengers on December 14th. There's that that makes me think of the Donner party story. Yeah. Um another another fun cannibalism story that we'll probably talk about at some oh, point. Yeah. Um but like they woke up when they were stranded in the mountains at one point and uh they were literally completely covered in snow. Like everybody just woke up to white. Yeah. Where, like, they thought they had gone blind type of thing. So, uh, at least four died from the impact of the fuselage hitting the snowbank, which ripped the remaining seats from their anchors, and like I said, and hurled them uh, to the front of the plane. Team physician uh, Dr. Francisco Nicola and his wife Esther Nicola, Eugenia Parado and Fernando Vasquez, pilot, those were the, yeah. Pilot Faradus died instantly when the nose gear compressed the instrument panel against his chest. Oh, damn. Forcing his head out the window. Jesus. Wow. Co-pilot Laguara was critically injured and trapped in the crushed cockpit. She said the doctor died? Yes. Fuck. Absolutely well, it, fuck. It, it comes later that there's actually two med students who survived. And, okay. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's, 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 that's good to have. Uh, it's, I... I love a, survival stories like I'll, this. I'll take a doctor first, a survivalist second, a med student third. So like I'm cool right. with it. Like yeah. it's I'm always like when when I hear stories like this, I really like survival games. So I'm always thinking of stuff like this and I, this might be kind of morbid, but I'm thinking of it as like a roster of like characters that I, that I have in a game. Yeah. You know where I'm like, oh, okay, cool. I've got a fuck. Okay, doctor That's why just I died. Said survival is second because in my mind, his stats are he's been in the wild before, yes, exactly. and the med student is new and unexperienced. Yeah, That's but, all. but still has like just the high, knowledge, higher natural stats. Yeah. In, yeah, in medical, you know, yeah. so like a level three survivalist is like a level one med student. Yeah, knowledge wise, uh-huh. but like actual skills wise, they're like way ahead. Right. So the co-pilot was stuck in the crushed cockpit. He asked one of the passengers to find his pistol and shoot him. Unless, of course, the med student is the survivalist. And then in that case, I'm actually going to go, that's number one. Yeah, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because a student is way more risky than a doctor. And in that situation, I need you to be able to do some risky shit calmly. Um, But the passenger declined. Yeah, so did did he just bleed out? Well, Mm -hmm, pretty much. Damn. I, what would you guys do? In that situation. Uh, if I knew that there was absolutely... Well, I mean, the plane's obviously not going to fly again, so you don't need him to be a pilot. 
anymore. Well, I'm, I'm, well, that is coldly rational. <laughs> it's true though. <laughs> it's true though. Like you, that's how you got to think in a survival situation, right? Cold and rationality. So here's really how you have to think in a survival situation. Um, if I knew what, if if I were in that situation, and I like somehow already knew what they're about to go through, I would find his pistol for myself. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm gonna find the pistol for me. Anyway, but it's, I, I'd, my, I'd probably go ahead and do him the favor too. Though, I probably would you know? too, because bleeding out seems terrifying and or horrible. Especially because he was crushed. I mean, yeah. There's nothing was, we can do. Yeah. All right. I guess I'll carry that for the rest of my life. Yeah. If no. I live, well, it's like people who work with trains and stuff know that mm-hmm. if somebody is crushed with something, like you can't pull it apart. Yeah. Because they'll bleed out and die. Um. And become techie techie. Yeah, exactly. Like mm-hmm. you, you have enough time there to uh, say goodbye. Yeah, <laughs> and that's that's about it. There's no saving you. So, yeah, you have to have organs enough to put them back together. Yeah. Right. So, when the crash was done and everything had come to rest, thirty three remained alive. So we've already Damn. lost twelve people. Holy Yikes. shit! Although many, although I will say. That's the statistic that makes plane crashes safer. Because if that had been a car in a similar situation yeah, falling down a mountain, would everyone would have died. Yeah. If you put 13 cars back to back to back and threw them down a mountain, everybody in those cars is dead. So, uh, although many were seriously or critically injured with wounds, including broken bones or broken legs, uh, which had resulted from the aircraft seats collapsing forward against the luggage portion and the pilot's cabin. 22-year-old Rafael Echeverria, uh, Echeverria's calf muscle, had been torn from his leg bone and was wrapped around his shin. Oh, my God. One of the medical students promptly put the calf flesh back in its (gasps) spot and wrapped it in place with a T-shirt. All right. Thank you, med student. But fuck that description. (laughs) You know what makes Uh, that description so bad is it's so easy to picture. Yep. Yeah. Especially when you can see your calf muscle and just... I'm not going to look at it now. I can't right now. (laughs) So, Canessa and Gustavo Serbino, both medical students, acted quickly to assess the severity of people's wounds and treat those that they could help most. Imagine being These might be level two or three med students. Right. Because they're like, fuck, I was not ready for this much practical training this week. But they get into it immediately. Yeah, uh uh-huh. We like it. That is a sense of duty. It just went up a couple steps. Mm -hmm. So Nando Parado had a skull fracture and remained in a coma for three days. Wow. Enrique Platero had a piece of metal stuck in his abdomen. When it was removed, it brought a few inches of his intestines. God damn it, Don. (laughs) Shit. By the way, I do have a screenshot from Letterkenny. They do, in fact, call Squirrely Dan, Squirrely Don at one point. Oh, like yeah, a yeah. whole episode. Uh-huh, yeah. yeah cool. He immediately shoved the six inches back in, had a t-shirt wrapped around him, and immediately began helping others. That's no so, fucking way. Yeah. That's, that's metal. so fucked up that I can't even make jokes about how you just said they shoved the six inches back in. <laughs> yeah, I wasn't even thinking about it because of how gross it was to think about. So the Chile, Chilean... But, but, yeah, they did. The Chilean Air Search and Rescue Service was notified within the hour that the flight was missing. Four planes searched that afternoon until dark. The news of the missing flight reached Uruguayan media about 6 p.m. that evening. 
officers of the Chilean um, Search and Rescue Services listened to the radio transmissions and concluded that the aircraft had come down in one of the most remote and inaccessible areas of the Andes. They called on the Andes Rescue Group of Chile. Um, unknown to the people on board or the rescuers, the flight had crashed about 13 miles from the former Hotel Termas El Sosnedo, which was an abandoned resort and hot springs that might have provided limited shelter. On the second day, 11 aircraft from Argentina, Chile, and Uruguay searched for the downed flight. The search area included their location, and a, flew, a few aircraft flew near the crash site. The survivors tried to use lipstick recovered from the luggage to write an SOS on the roof of the aircraft, but they quit after realizing they lacked enough lipstick to make the letters visible from the air. Mm-hmm. Damn. The, and it was mentioned, I didn't put it in here for some reason, but the plane was white. Oh. So it was a white plane in the Fuck. snow. Yeah, so... They also built a cross in the snow using luggage, but it was unseen by the search and rescue aircraft. They saw three aircraft fly overhead, but were unable to attract their attention. Well, they needed fire. Yeah. Yeah, but they didn't have it. Was, they were on a plane. Right. Well, I know. they. Well, you can always find something to make a fire out of. Maybe you can burn your clothes, but you're 15,000 feet in the Alps. Well, and it's, or the Andes. And it's in the snow. Well, that's the, so the second reason no. they need fire, though. Yeah. Right. Well, that's... I mean, so fire is like step... One or two in shelter is one, fire always. is two. Yeah, yeah. It's water shelter is three, and then actually. fire. Yeah, then food is four. You wouldn't think it, but it is. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, because it's rule of threes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, three three hours. It's three minutes without oxygen. Three hours. Mm. Can't remember what the three hour one is. No Sounds idea. Sounds like someone needs to take a survivalist class instead of demonology. No, we are taking the demonology classes <laughs> for sure. Listen, very shortly you will be hearing us calling ourselves certified demonologists. <laughs> <laughs> but no, then it's it's three and lords of Scotland. Three days without water, three weeks without food. I think no, yeah, and three months without hope. I've been going I can actually years. confirm that it takes a lot longer <laughs> than three months without hope. <laughs> okay, but this is in terms of a survival situation. Fair? It's like hope okay. for being rescued. I guess that's fair. So More specifically. The harsh conditions gave searchers little hope that they would find anyone alive. Search efforts were canceled after eight days. Oh! Mm-hmm. Wow. Only eight? Really? Yeah. On October Jesus. 21st, after searching a total of 142 hours and 30 minutes... The searchers concluded that there was no hope and determined and terminated the search. The snow had not melted at this time in the southern hemisphere spring. It's three hours without shelter, okay. although that's not always necessarily exactly correct. I think it's, it's without any shelter, yeah. like in inclement weather. Yeah. yeah, assuming you're like in a desert. So yeah. um, they hoped to find the bodies in December when the snow melted in the summer. So during the first night, five more people died. Co-pilot Laguara... Francisco Abal, Graziella Mariani, who was the woman who got the last-minute flight to see her daughter, mm. uh, Felipe Macquirian, and Julio Martinez Lamas. Which one of them do you think was cursed? Ooh, good question. Can you run down some of those names again for me? Bastard. Uh, co-pilot <laughs> Laguara, Francisco okay. Abal, Graziella Mariani, Felipe Macquirian, 
and Julio Martinez Lamas. That guy was cursed. You you think it was triple names Julio? Gotta get cursed. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's always three names. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm. It's either him or the lady that went to go see her daughter. Oh, true. Yeah, to see about having the curse lifted. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So the passengers were rem- just writing a story over here. <laughs> <laughs> so the passengers removed the broken seats and other debris from the aircraft and fashioned a crude shelter. All right, all right. The 28 people remaining crammed themselves into the broken fuselage in a space of about 8 feet 2 inches by 9 feet. Wow. To try to keep out some of the cold, they used luggage, seats, and snow to close off the open end of the fuselage. Okay. They improvised in other ways. Fido Strauch devised a way to obtain water in freezing conditions by using sheet metal from under the seats and placing snow on it. The solar collector melted snow, which dripped into empty wine bottles. To nice. S- to prevent snow blindness, he improvised sunglasses using the sun visors in the pilot's cabin, wire, and a bra strap. They removed the seat covers, which was partially made of wool to use against the cold, and they used the seat cushions as snowshoes. Marcelo Perez, captain of the rugby team, assumed leadership. Now, Nando Parado woke from his coma after three days to learn that his mother had died and that his 19-year-old sister, Susanna Parado, was severely injured. He attempted to keep her alive without success, as during the eighth day, she succumbed to her injuries. So the remaining 27 faced severe difficulties surviving the nights when temperatures dropped to negative 22 degrees Fahrenheit. Motherfucker. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I've, I felt negative five. This is in the Andes? Yes. I don't know what the humidity is like there, because that plays a huge factor in... Well, I'm sure it... 18,000 feet feet is pretty low humidity, which I mean, so that level of cold is always horrific, but when it's dry cold, it's not as bad. Um, (laughs) It's a dry heat. (laughs) (laughs) Now, all of them had lived near the sea. Some of the team members had never even seen snow before, and none had experience at high altitude. The survivors like medical supplies, cold weather clothing. Imagine them doing all this and they can't even fucking barely breathe. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Or food and only had three pairs of sunglasses among them to help prevent snow blindness. The survivors found a small transistor radio jammed between seats on the aircraft and Roy Harley improvised a long antenna using electrical cable from the plane. He heard the news that the search was canceled on their 11th day on the mountain. Pierce Paul Reed. How did he hear the news that the search was canceled? Did did he, he, over the over the over radio, radio that he built? Yeah. Okay. He fashioned an extra long antenna. But, they were able to pick up radio signals. Damn. Okay. But it was just Fuck. like a radio. It wasn't like a... That is horrible. Because yeah. imagine being able to hear that the search for you was canceled We've given and up you're on presumed you. dead. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, you are a dead man. Like the world thinks that you are dead. Yeah. So, and you're out here with these makeshift fucking snow blind sunglasses, <laughs> yeah, uh, fucking stuffing cushioning into your clothes yeah. and sharing an eight foot space with thirty people. Mm-hmm. So Piers Paul Who are also dead men walking. Yeah. Yes, <laughs> like so. Piers Paul Reed described the moments after this discovery in his book Alive: The Story of the Andy Survivors. The others who had clustered around Roy upon hearing the news began to sob and pray, all except Nando Parado, who looked calmly up at the mountains which rose to the west. Gustavo Nikolic came out of the aircraft and, seeing their faces, knew what they had heard. 
Nikolic climbed through the hole in the wall of suitcases and rugby shirts, crouched at the mouth of the dim tunnel, and looked at the mournful faces which were turned towards him. Hey, boys, he shouted. There's some good news. We just heard on the radio they've called off the search. Inside of the crowded aircraft, there was silence. As the hopelessness of their predicament enveloped them, they wept. Why the hell is that good news, Pace shouted angrily at Nikolic. Because it means that we're going to get out of here on our own. The I was I was just thinking that too. Like so, I mean, that's everyone always tells you that in a survival situation where you're lost on a mountain or something like that, the thing that you do is you stay put. Yeah, you create shelter. You do the steps to survival in a hostile environment like that. But if you know they're not coming for you, but if they're not looking for you, that's out the window. So. We're not going to just sit there and die. He's actually brilliant in yeah. rallying them and being like, we, we have to go now. Yeah. Otherwise, hey we guys, just live here until we die shortly. We're leaving right now. Yeah. And we're going to get the fuck out of here. Yeah. So the courage of this one boy prevented a flood of total despair. Leave it to a fucking sports guy, too. To <laughs> right. be like, hey, good news, we lost. But what's that mean? <laughs> we get to kick their ass next week. Like... <laughs> So, so the survivors had very little food, eight chocolate bars, a tin of mussels, three small jars of jam, a tin of almonds, a few dates, candies, dried plums, and several bottles of wine. During the days following the crash, they divided this into small amounts to make their meager supply last as long as possible. Parado ate a single chocolate-covered peanut over three days. Wow. Yeah. There's no point in stretching it that long. It's That's another survival myth is they say to ration your water. Don't. Drink as you are thirsty. Yeah. Because otherwise you're like, you're not actually going to give yourself more time. Yeah. By rationing your water. Well, in the grand scheme of things, the one thing they're not lacking in this time is water. Right. So. Well, but I mean, the same thing goes for food. Yeah. Like stretching out one peanut over three days, it might help you psychologically, mm -hmm. but physically it is not going to buy you more time before your body goes into ketosis. Right. Like, so even with this strict rationing, their food stock dwindled quickly. There was no natural vegetation and there were no animals or eat on either the glacier or nearby snow-covered mountains. The food ran out after a week. And the group Did tried. Did they see their reflections in the <laughs> snow-covered hills? <laughs> Did uh, the landslide bring them down? When the food ran out after a week and the group tried to eat parts of the airplane, such as the cotton inside the seats okay, and leather. Okay, that's just a bad idea. They became what? what? No. They started eating the cotton from inside the seats and the leather that the seats were made out of. Now, the leather, that can be done. Yeah. Uh, not all leather is edible. I'm sure most of the leather in that plane was treated with some kind of chemical. Yeah, probably. But you know what? If it puts weight in your stomach and gives you some strength for a little bit, yeah. then... Uh, enough strength to start moving. I'll take a minor poisoning over death forever. I yes. Think. Yeah. yeah. So now we get to the part that makes this episode perfect for our Thanksgiving episode. Knowing that rescue efforts had been called Fuck off, off. faced with starvation and death, <laughs> those still alive agreed that should they die, the others might consume their bodies to live. With no choice, the survivors ate the bodies of their dead friends. And one of You the know what? 
What do you guys think about it? Would you let? Would you, you have be like, to? You have to. Well, yeah, but like, how would you feel about knowing somebody's going to eat you after you die? Would you I'm be dead. F- fucking care. weird about it? Yeah. Well, no. so no. It's a my consciousness is gone. I kind it's, of agree with you. Uh, I make at that point eat it. Like you better make damn sure I'm fucking dead. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, um, you got to think at this point they've had you know there was forty five people they're down to what did I say twenty six or twenty seven now yeah mm-hmm. so now granted the first few are like far away but they, <laughs> yeah I get I guess they are because yeah. they did fall out well of the preserved plane. though so yeah, oh, yeah. They're, they're pretty far away um, but one of the things that I, I in one of the videos I watched that said that three people volunteered to be the ones to prepare the bodies. So that wow. nobody else had, had to, to know who Jesus. they were eating. So, so survivor um, Roberto Canessa described the decision to eat the pilot. How do you feel about that? Would you volunteer for that? No, no. I wouldn't either. I, no. That's too much for me. No, I. So I have a really strong stomach for this kind of thing, and I think if there was a situation where it's like nobody else could do it, I might take that burden yeah and then i'd i would probably like say it's the three of us i would work something out with you guys where it's like okay you guys go prepare we'll like take shifts preparing and then we'll give each other food yeah. but don't we won't tell any we won't tell each other anything about it so then we three also don't have to know who exactly we're eating yeah yeah even though we all know that Ruben wants us to eat his whole ass. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. You, if you don't start with my ass, <laughs> I will consider it an insult. Funny thing is somebody commented on the, the post for uh, Satanic Panic. Yeah. Uh, uh, tune in to find out is Ruben going to ask someone to eat their whole his whole ass or... Just half of just it. Just half of it. Yeah. Well, now we know. Ruben wants his whole ass eaten. You got to start with you that You got to start with that. So survivor Roberto Canessa described the decision to eat the pilots and their dead friends and family members as follows. Our common goal was to survive, but what we lacked was food. We had long since run out of the meager pickings we'd found on the plane, and there was no vegetation or animal life to be found. After just a few days, we were feeling the sensation of our own bodies consuming themselves just to remain alive. Before long, we would become too weak to recover from starvation. We knew the answer, but it was too hard, to con- too terrible to contemplate. The bodies of our friends and teammates, preserved outside in the snow and ice, contained vital, life-giving protein that could help us survive. But could we do it? For a long time, we agonized. I went out in the snow and prayed to God for guidance. Without his consent, I felt it would be violating the memory of my friends and that I would be stealing their souls. We wondered. Okay, that's not how souls work. Even if you if you believe in souls, that's not how souls work. No, you don't know that. True. I don't even believe in like a a soul really. So exactly. So you don't know. So we wondered whether we were going mad even to contemplate. Such I a happen thing. to have met a soul once. You see, for I'm an exorcist. Fuck. <laughs> Off. <laughs> I've been trying not to draw attention to this because I don't want people to like go on that post and dogpile him or anything. No, don't do so. that. <laughs> don't do that, guys. Don't fucking do that. This is gonna be two weeks from then. Now, yeah. like that matters to the internet. True. Uh, exactly. Um, we wondered. Yeah, I read that. I'm sorry. No, I didn't. We wondered whether we were truly going mad to even contemplate such a thing. Had we turned into brute savages? Or was this the only sane thing to do? It, Both are yes. Right. You never weren't <clears throat> brutish savages. No. We 
in survival situations, a human being must revert. That's the only way. <laughs> it's you will either become a cannibal or you will die. D- d- if would, the options are eat people or die, you're going to eat people or you're going to fucking die. Then you find out which kind you are. And it's also a matter of you're going to be putting willpower against survival instinct. And because hunger. it's like that's that's what I mean. Yeah. So it's your survival instinct is going to tell you to eat like in a way that we as people who have lived with a certain degree of comfort are not and likely never will be familiar. We will never know, hopefully, what it is like to be that hungry. Right. We we will never have yes, any you've, concept you've fasted of it. for a week or whatever, but you right. have never been that hungry. Right. And also the psychological aspect. So it's like, how badly do you really not want to eat another person? Yeah. So I don't if, even think it's about that. I think it's about there is there's you, then there's the part of you that is your body and brain that is the primitive part of your that's psychological. I mean. That's yeah. that part doesn't that's your survival want things. instinct. It requires things yes. of you. Yes. Like that is how it works. So it's like is your willpower <clears throat> strong enough to let you die not having been a cannibal? Yeah. So um, the answer is usually no. Right. You will crack. You will eat Fernando. (laughs) The group survived by collectively deciding to eat flesh from the bodies of their dead comrades. This decision was not taken lightly as most of the dead were classmates, close friends or relatives. You know what? You better make that decision while you can still make it respectfully. Coherently and respectfully. Yes. Canessa used broken glass from the aircraft windshield as a cutting tool. He set the example by swallowing the first matchstick-sized strip of frozen flesh. Later on, several others did the same. The next day, more survivors ate the meat offered to them, but a few refused or could not keep it down. Mm -hmm. Ooh, and that's worse, Mm -hmm. too, because now you're you're getting dehydrated, too. Um, they, They never got a hold of any kind of fire? No. Not yet, apparently. I don't understand. Not one of y'all smoke cigarettes? Well, they all smoke, and we'll get to that. But still, there was nothing enough to burn, I guess. I don't know. They're eating all the burnable you gotta, yeah. No, literally, they were eating cotton earlier. Cotton burns. Right, but at the same time, they were trying to keep that stuff to block the hole in the fuselage. So, like, all the luggage and stuff, at some point, you have to decide. Like you said, three hours without shelter. Shh. Sure. You know, and if and you, now they're moving, they can't yeah. carry enough with them because cotton burns, but it burns fucking fast. It oh, does. No, they're not moving. Oh, what? No, they're staying where they are right Why? now. They're trying to figure things out. Well, they're trying to create they're, they're a plan in the planning to move, stage, probably but that, but because still. you need to plan out that kind of thing very, very well because they don't even know exactly where they are. A few minutes of fire with some clothes or shelter for the next couple of days while we figure it out. Yeah, I still I still think in when you're in a cannibalism situation where where it is cannibalism or death we a sit- fire to cook it is going to be better for everyone. Yeah. But we're sitting here in our cushy chairs not in a mountain in the Andes. Yes, but people aren't able to keep it down because it is recognizable as flesh. Mhm. And 
if you were able to cook it and make it look like a little pork chop or something, you know, it might I be really easier think for you them are to underestimating or you're overestimating the amount of flammable stuff that would be flammable for long enough to cook meat. Yeah, I guess. Like it 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 you have to think any cloth they find, they're trying to find use it for clothing, insulation, right. and insulation. So, well, this might help answer some of your questions. In his memoir, Miracle in the Andes, 72 Days on the Mountain and My Long Trek Home. 72 days. Yeah. Uh, Nando Parado wrote about this decision. At high altitude, the body's caloric needs are astronomical. We were starving in earnest with no hope of finding food, but our hunger soon grew so voracious that we searched anyway, again and again. We scoured the fuselage in search of crumbs and morsels. We tried to eat strips of leather torn from pieces of luggage though we knew that the chemicals they'd been treated with would do us more harm than good. Okay. We ripped open seat cushions hoping to find straw, but found only an edible upholstery foam. Again and again, I came to the same conclusion. Unless we wanted to eat the clothes we were wearing, there was nothing here but aluminum, plastic, ice, and rock. Okay. Nothing that's burnable. Yeah. So Parado protected the corpse of his sister and mother, as they, and they were never eaten. They dried the meat on in the sun, so they would take the pieces of meat and stick it on top of the fuselage. Uh, okay, and I'm drawing another line here. If they, if you weren't going to eat them, you needed to burn them. Hmm. Human body will burn for a hot second. That's yeah. true. It's it's the wicking effect. We talked about this in the episode about uh, spontaneous human combustion. Yes, go um, check that out. <laughs> yeah, there's there's a little bonus thing for you because yeah. I'm going to mention I don't know. it here. Are you going to fight a dude who's dying but also trying to protect his dead Mom family? And sister. Maybe. Mm. Do you think you'll win? Uh, probably not. Do you think <laughs> it's worth that caloric need? <laughs> Maybe. I, I I don't none of us really know where our heads would be yeah. there. But I I just I I can't get over how important it is for some amount of fire. Yeah. But sometimes you just don't have the opportunity. Yeah. So they dried the meat in the sun, which made it more palatable. They were initially so revolted by the experience that they could only they could eat only skin, muscle, and fat. When the supply of flesh was diminished, they also ate the hearts, lungs, and even the brains. Now, all of the passengers were Roman Catholic. Some feared eternal damnation. According to Reed... Some rationalize the act of cannibalism as equivalent to the Eucharist. Uh, Wow. Yeah. The body and blood of Jesus Christ under the appearance of bread and wine. Others justified it accordingly to a Bible verse found in John 15, 13. No man hath greater love than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. Hmm. Some initially had reservations, though after realizing that it was their only means of staying alive, they changed their minds a few days later. Javier Methal and his wife Liliana, the only surviving female passenger, were the last survivors to eat human flesh. She had strong religious convictions and only reluctantly agreed to partake of the flesh after she was told to view it as like Holy Communion. So everyone who had survived up until this point did eventually opt to yes. eat? Okay. Yeah, everybody ate. 17 days Happy after- Thanksgiving, everybody eats. <laughs> Everybody eats. Yeah. 17... Everybody, 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 everybody eats. 17 days after the crash, near midnight on October 29th, 
<laughs> An avalanche struck the aircraft <gasps> containing the survivors as they slept. The wow. landslide did bring them down. Yeah. In fact, <laughs> it filled the fuselage <laughs> and killed eight more people. Shit. The, what uh, are we down to? Like uh, less than 20? 26, I think. And they just killed eight. So we're down to, yeah, 18. Yikes. So the people that were killed, Enrique Platero, Liliana Methal, Gustavo Nikolic, Daniel Maspons, Juan Menendez, Diego Storm, Carlos Rogue, and Marcelo Perez. Diego, Diego Storm. Storm. <laughs> <laughs> that might be the coolest name I've ever heard. May he rest in peace. I don't know. Thor Rocket's still pretty pretty goddamn good. Pretty uh, good name. But Diego Storm. Diego Storm might that, edge that out. God, he should have been a weatherman. <laughs> Who knows what he could have been. So the death of Perez. <laughs> Shit, now I'm sad. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> The death of Marcelo Perez, the team captain and leader of the survivors, along with the loss of Liliana Methel, who would nurse the survivors like a mother and a saint, were extremely discouraging to those remaining alive. The avalanche completely buried the fuselage and filled the interior to within three foot, three inches of the roof. Mm. The survivors trapped inside soon realized they were running out of air. Nando Parado found a metal pipe or a metal pole from the luggage racks and was able to poke a hole in the fuselage roof, providing ventilation. With considerable difficulty, on the morning of October 31st, they dug a tunnel from the cockpit to the surface, only to encounter a furious blizzard that left them no choice but to stay inside the fuselage. Imagine that. Like, okay, so we're going to band together here, we're going to tunnel our way up to the surface... And then the first guy finally breaks out, pokes his head out that little hole. He's like, well, everybody go back. There's a blizzard. Mm-hmm. We're stuck here for a little while. For three days. To a, yep. That's what I was just about to say. Mm-hmm. Up to a number of days. Mm-hmm. Like For three days, the remaining survivors were trapped in the extremely cramped space within the buried fuselage. God, you only- said it was like eight feet by... It was originally eight feet by nine feet or something like that. Yeah. So basically they've got nine they've got that same amount of surface area, but within three and a half feet of the ceiling. Right. Wait, I just had a fire idea. What fuel. Well, they don't have the other parts of the airplane. Oh, they're yeah. it's just the fuselage. It's just the fuselage. The mm. tail and wings are back with the first bodies. Damn it. Sorry, I'm just I'm survival brain. I'm I trying know. to, you know. You need to get off the fire thing, though. It's so important. <laughs> <laughs> Clearly, so, it's not as important as we think because they are still kicking it. Um, Yeah, like 6% of the total number of people that survived the crash. It's, so, it's almost 50. Yeah, we're getting there. 22 and uh, a half people. Yeah, but they haven't even started moving yet. That's true. So they were trapped there for three days with the corpses of those who had died in the avalanche. But they still fucking made it, though. And also, some of them got killed by an avalanche. That's not yeah, on that's fire. Yeah, that's not their fault. That, yeah. that's, the some fire of them got killed by a plane crash and stab wounds. That's not on fire, either. With no other choice, on the third day, they began to eat the raw flesh of their newly dead friends. Uh, Prando later said it was soft. Prando and- Calrissian? Yes. It was soft and greasy, streaked with bloods and bits of wet gristle. Did that guy later betray them? No. No? His son, I, his son did, though. <laughs> I gagged hard when I placed it in my mouth. With Perez dead... Yeah, you did. Cousins Eduardo and Fido Stouch and Daniel Fernandez assumed leadership. 
They took over harvesting flesh from their deceased friends and distributing it to the others. Are um, are any of the survivors, the people who survived, are they still alive? Um, I'm not sure. I don't know. Maybe we should wait to release this until none of them are. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Before you know what? Yeah. I'll take a, I'll take a strongly worded email or even a punch to the jaw for this. I'm fine. <laughs> I'll, I'll we for sure are going to deserve a punch to the face if any one of the survivors hears this. Before the avalanche, a few of the survivors became insistent on their only way of survival. That their only way of survival would be to climb over the mountains and search for help, because the co-pilot's dying statement that the aircraft had passed Curacao, the group believed that the Chilean countryside was just a few miles away to the west. They were actually more than 55 miles to the east, deep in the Andes. The snow that had buried the fuselage gradually melted as summer arrived. Survivors made several brief expeditions in the immediate vicinity of the aircraft. It's also spring, so I guess the snow's still there, but the temperatures might not be quite as extreme. Right. Yeah. Well, At least in the daytime. Like, the freezes are going to be bad, but, like, in the daytime, you're you're probably doing a bit better. Right. It's like, I'm sure nighttime is grueling, but the daytime's probably not as bad for them right now. Yeah. Survivors made several brief expeditions to the immediate vicinity of the aircraft in the first few weeks after the crash, but they found that altitude sickness, dehydration, snow blindness, malnourishment, and the extreme cold during the nights made traveling any significant distance an impossible task. Literally the definition of a hostile environment. Mm -hmm. So the passengers decided that a few members would seek help. Several survivors were determined to join the expedition team, including Roberto Canessa, one of the two medical students, but others were less willing or unsure of their ability to withstand such a physically exhausting ordeal. Numa Turcati and Antonio uh, Vizentin were among the strongest boys and were allocated larger rations of food and the warmest clothes. They were also spared the daily manual labor around the crash site that was essential for the group's survival so they could build their strength. At Canessa's urging, they waited nearly seven days to allow for higher temperatures. They hoped to get to Chile to the west, but a large mountain lay west of the crash site, persuading them to try heading east first. They hoped that the valley they were in would make a U-turn and allow them to start walking west to Chile. On November 15th, after several hours of walking east, the trio found the largely intact tail section of the aircraft containing the galley about one mile east and downhill of the fuselage. Okay. Inside and nearby, they found luggage containing a box of chocolates, three meat patties, a bottle of rum, cigarettes, extra clothes, comic books, and a little medicine. They also found the aircraft's two-way radio. The group decided to camp that night inside the tail section. They built a fire... Yay! And stayed up late. And up, stayed up. There late. you go. Yes. Are you Yay! happy now? Now let it go. Oh, but they had to burn the comic books. No, Maybe they, they would have been better without fire. They were fire. reading comic books. No fire would have been better. Yeah. They stayed up. <laughs> <laughs> so they continued east. If it was next... one piece, I'll never forgive them. <laughs> uh, they continued east the next morning. On the second night of their expedition, which was the first night sleeping outside. They nearly froze to death. Yeah. After some debate the next morning, they decided that it would be wiser to return to the tail, remove the aircraft's batteries, and take them back to the fuselage so that they could power up the radio and make an SOS call to Santiago for help. Beautiful. Good shit. Upon returning to the tail, the trio found that the 53-pound batteries were too heavy to take back to the fuselage, 
which lay uphill from the mm, tail section. Especially while you're malnourished, mm-hmm. but may- maybe a sled with a few people pulling it. Maybe. Well, they decided instead that it would be more effect- effective to return to the fuselage and disconnect the radio from the aircraft's frame. And bring it downhill. Take it back to the tail and connect it to the batteries. One of the team members, Roy Harley, was an amateur electronics enthusiast. He's the guy who rigged up the radio. Okay, that's, that's really good because yeah. I was going to say it would be... So, dis- like, I think it would take away their last bit of hope if they tried to bring that radio down the hill and they, like, dropped it and broke it. Fuck. You joshed yourself. <laughs> Fuck. Not quite. Um, they recruited his help in the endeavor. Unknown to any of the team members. Did, they f- did he fall down the hill and break? No. The, aircraft's, <laughs> the aircraft's electrical system used 115-volt AC while the battery that had, they had DC located current. produced 24 volts of DC, no. making the plan futile from the beginning. After several days of trying to make the radio work, they gave up and returned to the fuselage with the knowledge that they would have to climb out of the mountains if they were to have any hope of being rescued. On the return trip, they were struck by a blizzard. Neat. Harley, Roy Harley. why not at this point? Yeah, yeah. Lay down and died. You know what? Or laid down to die. I'm sorry. Oh. But Parado would not let him stop and took him back to the fuselage. Wow. Now that's a friend. That's a hero. Yeah. On October, on November 15th, Arturo Noguera died. And then three days later, Rafael Ekverin died, both from gangrene due to their infected wounds. Ooh. Numa Turcati, who, whose revulsion from eating the meat accelerated his physical decline, mm. died on day 60, which was the 11th of December. Weighing only 55 pounds. Damn. Those Holy left fuck. knew that they would die if they did Listen, not find help. 55 pounds. I want you guys to understand. 55 pounds is literally... A toddler. It's literally a toddler, but for a grown man, it's literally your bones, yeah. your skin, and what is left of your internal organs. Yeah. yeah. Nothing else. There's no water weight or nothing. No. The survivors heard on or heard on the transistor radio that the Uruguayan Air Force had resumed searching for them. Oh, okay. It was now apparent that the only way out was to climb over the mountains to the west. They also realized that unless they found a way to survive the freezing temperature of the nights, a trek was impossible. The survivors who found the rear of the fuselage came up with an idea to use insulation from the rear of the fuselage, copper wire, and waterproof fabric that covered the air conditioning of the plane to fashion a sleeping bag. Nice. Nando Parada described in his book, Miracle in the Andes, uh, how they came up with the idea of making a sleeping bag. The second challenge would be to protect ourselves from exposure, especially after sundown. At this time of year, we could expect daytime temperatures well above freezing, but the nights were still cold enough to kill us. And we knew now that we couldn't expect to find shelter on the open slopes. We needed a way to survive the long nights without freezing, and the quilted bats of insulation we'd taken from the tail section gave us our solution. As we brainstormed about the trip, we realized that we could sew the patches together and create a large, warm quilt. Then we realized that by folding the quilt in half and stitching the seams together, we could create an insulated sleeping bag large enough for all three expeditionaries to sleep in. 
With the warmth of three bodies trapped by the insulating cloth, mm. we might be able to weather the coldest nights. I would say that's probably the only thing that was keeping them alive before is that there were so many people inside yeah. of that confined fuselage mm-hmm. that even though it wasn't well insulated, the snow was acting as very good insulation mm-hmm. and they were sharing body heat to survive in there. Otherwise, they probably would have frozen to death way sooner. Fucking days. Yeah. Yes. Like... Carlitos Paez took on the challenge. His mother had taught him to sew when he was a boy, and with the needles and threads from the sewing kit found in the mother's, his mother's cosmetic case, he began to work. To speed the process up, Carlitos taught others to sew, and we all took our turns. Coche in Kierte, Gustavo Zerbino, and Fito Stouch turned out to be our best and fastest tailors. After the sleeping bag was completed and Numa Turcata, or Turcati died, uh, Canessa was still hesitant. While others encouraged Parado, none would volunteer to go with him. Parado finally persuaded Canessa to set, uh, to set out, and joined by Vincenten, the three men took to the mountains on December 12th. On December 12th, 1972, Parado, Canessa, and Vincenten, lacking mountaineering gear of any kind, began to climb the glacier at 11,710 feet to the 15,320-foot peak blocking their way west. They trekked for over 10 days, traveling 38 miles seeking help. Based on the aircraft's altimeter, they thought they were at 7,000 feet when they were actually at about 11,800 feet. Given the pilot's dying statement that they were near Curacao, they believed that they were near the western edge of the Andes and that the closest help lay in that direction. As a result, they brought only a three-day supply of meat. Mm. Parado wore three pairs of jeans and three sweaters over a polo shirt. He wore four pairs of socks wrapped in in a plastic shopping bag. They had no technical gear, no maps or compass, and no climbing experience. Yeah, no climbing experience. Instead of climbing the ridge to the west, which was somewhat lower than the peak, they climbed straight up the steep mountain. God damn. Yeah. Listen, the balls on these people are iron and steel. Yeah. Like, it's amazing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's all. So they, The brains. Yeah. They, like, they've done so many insanely clever things. To I will say, I watched a, a um, <clears throat> fuck, documentary about this guy who spent, like, 73 days on, at sea. Uh-huh. And he talks about how... He had never been a survivalist, but he survived on his own, like just one dude, like sharks in the ocean. Yes. And um, he says that he started doing things that he never even would have thought to think of before because your brain and body will like you know how to survive your brain. You know how you just don't have a reason to know how. So you haven't yet. So, but when you get in these situations, your brain clocks into fucking overdrive. Right. And you are, you know, if you're lucky, as we've learned now because of avalanches and blizzards and other things, oh my, that you, if you're lucky and you're doing these clever things, you can survive. They thought that they would reach the peak in one day. Parado took the lead and the other two often had to remind him to slow down, although the thin oxygen poor air made it difficult for all of them. During part of the climb, they sank up to their hips in the snow, which had been softened by the summer sun. It was still bitterly cold, but the sleeping bag allowed them to live through the nights. (coughs) In the documentary film Stranded, 
Canessa described how the first night during this ascent, <coughs> they had difficulty finding a place to put down the sleeping bag. A storm blew fiercely, and they finally found a spot on a ledge of rock on the edge of an abyss. Canessa said it was the worst night of his life. The climb was terribly slow. The survivors at the fuselage watched them climb for three days. You wow! You gotta know how bad a night is when this man who has survived so much already notes this specific night. Yeah, yeah. So on the second day, Canessa thought he saw a road to the east and tried to persuade Parado to head in that direction. Parado disagreed, and they argued without reaching a decision. On the third morning of the trek, Canessa stayed at their camp. Vizintin uh, and Parado reached the base of a near vertical wall more than 100 or more than 300 feet tall encased in snow and ice. Parado was determined to hike out or die trying. He used a stick from his pack to carve steps in the wall. He gained the summit of about 15,260 feet. I'm sorry, high. Don. I got distracted by the sound that happened. What did you say? For the last, like, 30 seconds. Uh, on the third morning of the trek, Canessa stayed in their camp. Vizentin and Parado reached the base of a near vertical wall more than 100, damn it, more than 300 feet tall encased in snow and ice. Got it. Parada is determined to get up. Yeah. Parada okay. was determined to hike out or die trying. Got it. Got it. Thinking he would see the green valleys of Chile to the west, he was stunned when they reached the peak to see a vast array of mountain peaks in every direction. They had climbed a mountain on the border of Argentina and Chile, meaning the trekkers were still tens of miles from the green valleys of Chile. Vizentin and Parado rejoined Canessa and they had slept where they had slept the night before. At sunset, while sipping cognac, they had found in the tail section, Parado said, Roberto, can you imagine how beautiful this would be if we were not dead men? The next morning... The Th you know what, Don? That is exactly what I've been thinking about this whole time. I was thinking right. about asking you guys, like... If you were in this situation and you lived, would you go back on purpose to hike anywhere? Oh, probably not. Like, I might. Well, in the end, there's a, there's actually a... Because, uh, like, it would be beautiful. It would be breathtaking. And yeah. I would want mm -hmm. to see it again, but safer. Yeah. But there's actually a, a monument there now Is where there? the fuselage was. Wow. wow. Uh, Good. The next morning, the three men could see that the hike was going to take much longer than they had originally planned. They were running out of food, so Vizentin agreed to return to the crash site. The return was entirely downhill, and using an aircraft seat as a makeshift sleigh, he returned to the crash site in one hour. So they had walked wow. for three days, and he was able to get back in one hour. Jesus. Physics is stupid. <laughs> so Parado and Canessa took three hours to climb to the summit. When Canessa reached the top and saw nothing but snow-capped mountains for miles around them, his first thought was, we're dead. It would be, wouldn't it? Mm -hmm. Parado saw two smaller peaks on the western horizon that were not covered in snow. A valley at the base of that mountain that they stood on wound its way towards the peak. Parado was sure that this was their way out of the mountains. He refused to give up hope. Canessa agreed to go west. Only much later did Canessa learn that the road he saw to the east would have gotten them rescue sooner and easier. Oh. <laughs> On the summit. But you know what? That's the game yeah. life plays with you sometimes. Like, mm -hmm. you can go left or right. You have zero information. Choose. Yep. Right. So on the summit, Parada told Canessa, we may be walking to our deaths, but I would rather walk to meet my death than wait for it to come to me. 
fucking right, my yeah, dude. Fuck you. How? Fuck yes. Yeah. So, what a legend. God damn. <laughs> so, I feel uplifted. <laughs> so Knessa agreed. You and I are friends, Nando. We've been through so much. Now let's go die together. Fucking shit. Fuck yeah. <laughs> oh my oh, God. These are the coolest people I maybe have ever read or heard <laughs> right. about. Right. Like, so they follow. Like we, we've made some jokes. We've had our fun. This. We have had our fun with it's this. It's mostly a defense mechanism. You guys yes, get that. Largely. And what absolute badass Legends. Mm-hmm. Absolute legend. Dude, I I think in those terms, because you, sometimes you have to when you have mental health and other issues, but like, that's really that. That's right. like, let's go die together. Yeah. Right. Because I'm not going to fucking sit here and wait. Like... So they followed the ridge towards the valley and descended a considerable distance. This podcast is soon to be brought to you from a whole different state, probably. (laughs) Parado and Canessa hiked for several more days. First, they were able to reach the narrow valley that Parado had seen on the top of the mountain, where they found the source of the Rio San Jose, leading to the Rio Portillo, which means Rio, or which meets Rio Azufre at uh, Maintienes. They followed the river and reached the snow line. Gradually, there appeared more and more signs of human presence. First, some evidence of camping, and finally, on the ninth day, some cows. <coughs> when they rested that evening, they were very tired, and Canessa seemed unable to proceed further. As the men gathered wood to build a fire, one of them saw three men on horseback at the other side of the river. Parado called to them, but the noise of the river made it impossible to communicate. One of the men across the river saw Parado and Canessa and shouted back, Tomorrow. The next day, the man returned. He scribbled a note, attached it and a pencil to a rock with some string, and threw the message across the river. Parado replied, I came from a place that I came from a plain that fell in the mountains. I am Uruguayan. We have been walking for ten days. I have a wounded friend up there. In the plain, there are still fourteen injured people. I was wondering how many survivors were left. Well, as, as far as he knows, we don't yeah, know. Yeah. Right. So far, we're still at like 17 or 18 people. No, yeah. if there's 14. And three of them. And then two of no, because one went back. Oh. The guy that went back to the. Okay, okay so, so 16 tops. Yeah. 16 uh, tops. Okay. We have to get out from here quickly, and we don't know how. We don't have any food. We are weak, and we are going to. Are, when are you going to come and fetch us? Please, we cannot even walk. Where are we? So Sergio Catalan, who is a Chilean mule, muleteer, which I guess is someone who raises mules, gotta be, read the note and gave them the sign that he understood. Catalan talked with the other two men, and one of them remembered that several weeks before, Carlos Paez's father had asked them if they had heard about the Andes plane crash. The Areos could not imagine that anyone could still be alive. Catalan threw bread to the men across the river. He then rode on horseback westward for 10 hours to bring help. During the trip, Another hero. Yeah. Yes. During the trip, he saw another array. Uh, I love it when I get to hear about heroes in this podcast. Arriero on the south side of the Rio Azufre and asked him to reach the men and bring them to Los Metienes. Then he followed the river to its junction with Rio. Every Tim- time you say river, all I can think about. Over the river and through the woods to Grumma's house we go. Mm-hmm. Uh, river to its junction with Rio Tenuri. Yeah, it's the same thing that we had with the volcano earlier. Mm-hmm. Where after crossing a bridge, he was able to reach the narrow route that linked the village to Puer- uh, Puente Negro, 
to the holiday resort of Termas del Flaco. Here, he was able to stop a truck and reach the police station in Puerto Negro. They relayed news that the survivors they re- they relayed the news of the survivors to Army Command in San Fernando, Chile, who contacted the army in Santiago. Meanwhile, Parado and Canessa were brought on horseback to Los Metienes de Curacao, where they were fed and allowed to rest. They had hiked about 24 miles over 10 days. Since the plane crash, Canessa had lost almost half of his body weight, or about 97 pounds. Wow. When the news broke out that the people had survived the crash of the Uruguayan Air Force Flight 571, the story of the passenger's survival after 72 days drew international attention. A flood of international reporters began walking several kilometers along the route from Puerto, uh, Puente Negro to Termas del Flaco. Put it in context, everyone. 60 days is two months. That's enough time for you to feel like the place you just moved is now your home. Right. The reporters clamored to interview Parado and Canessa about the crash and their several severe survival ordeal. The Chilean Air Force provided three helicopters to assist with the rescue. They flew in heavy cloud cover under instrument conditions to Los Metienes de Curacao, where the army interviewed Parado and Canessa. Like at this point, the survivors are not being taken home. They are moving back in. Yeah. Right. When the fog lifted at about noon, Parado volunteered to lead the helicopters to the crash site. He had brought the pilot's flight chart and guided the helicopters up the mountain to the location of the remaining survivors. One helicopter remained behind in reserve. The pilots were astounded at the difficult terrain the two men had crossed to reach help. On the afternoon of December 22, 1972, the two helicopters carrying search and rescue personnel reached the survivors. Like, here's the thing. When I said earlier that I might go back out, I didn't mean to, like, the spot. Right. But what I did mean is, like, if, if I'm looking at the react after 72 days out there, I've survived. And I'm looking at the reactions of professional search and re- rescue op- uh, operatives being like, you should not have been able to do this. Right. right. You should not. And then I did it. And now I have equipment. N- nature can't beat me now. True. <laughs> True. Like, yes, I, yes, yes. You have already I, beat this boss. And I did. And I had. And I was level one. Right. Like I'm now yeah, I'm yeah. level you, 10 you, or so. And I have the this knowledge. boss on a challenge run. You can do it with gear. Anytime. With no issue. Yeah. I started the game on master mode, and I now I'm back in normal. Yes. Like, so, uh, yeah, so on December 22nd, the helicopters carrying search and rescue reached the survivors. The steep terrain only permitted the pilot to touch down with a single skid. Due to the altitude and weight limits, the two helicopters were able to take only half of the survivors. Four members of the search and rescue team volunteered to stay with the seven survivors remaining on the mountain. The survivors slept a final... I'm sorry, what did you just say to me? Seven survivors left on the mountain total, or did total. they take seven and there's seven left? There's seven left. So they took half of the 14. Right, because of weight limits. They yes. Couldn't take okay, anymore. okay, okay. I thought you were saying they took half of the seven. I was like, when did the other seven go? <laughs> like, No, yeah, and then four yeah. members of the search and rescue team yeah, stayed. stayed. So now there's like, what, 11, 12 people in the mountain? 11 people? Yeah, yeah. So the survivors slept a final night in the fuselage with the search and rescue party. The second flight of helicopters arrived. They at least brought supplies for them. Had to have. Yeah. Gotta. Yeah. Uh, That's definitely part of the plan in in a situation like this, for sure. So the second flight of helicopters arrived the following morning at daybreak. This is in, when when is this, uh, year-wise? 72. 72. Yeah. 
That's why I'm afraid that one of them's going to be still alive. <laughs> they <laughs> hear our uneducated yeah. opinions about... They carry the remaining like survivors years. to hospitals in Santiago for evaluation. They were treated for a variety of conditions, including altitude sickness, dehydration, frostbite, broken bones, scurvy, and malnutrition. First of all, you got to learn how to live like I do. I assume, because I never remember what year we're talking about. Uh huh. So I always assume every one of these people, it, this happened to them yesterday, uh-huh. and they might come to get me. <laughs> and I do not time, give we, a shit. We, we didn't make light of them. I mean, we're just... We've made jokes about the situation, and but we haven't been insulting. No, I don't think we have. But other people have different opinions. Yeah, true. And, yeah, uh, right. Well, that's we we are commenting on a horrific thing that they went through. Yeah, and this is a story to us. Yeah, exactly. But you know, to them, it's a it's the worst life. thing that ever happened to yeah. them. So you know, hearing me harp on about how they needed fire, they needed fire, they needed fire, even though I was doing it as a bit. At mm-hmm. a certain point, like they might hear that and be like, this fucking asshole doesn't know shit well, about what we went through. Maybe that happens and we get a Highgate Cemetery. <laughs> it would be fucking issue. awesome to interview any one of these people. Oh, yeah. yeah. No, literally all incredible human beings. So the last remaining survivors were rescued on December 23rd. I don't even give a shit about this now. I want to know about the rest of their life. Like, what did you <laughs> right. do after this, my guy? I need to know. Uh, what could possibly have been the thing that got, you know what I mean? Yeah. So, yeah, on December 23rd, 1972, more than two months after the crash. Under normal circumstances, the search and rescue team would have brought back the remains of the dead for burial. However, given the circumstances, including that the bodies were in Argentina, the Chilean rescuers left the bodies at the site until authorities could make the necessary decisions. Mm -hmm. The Chilean military photographed the bodies and mapped the area. Upon being rescued, the survivors initially explained that they had eaten some cheese and other food they had carried with them, and then local plants and herbs. They planned to discuss the details of how they survived, including their cannibalism, in private with their families. Rumors circulated in Montevideo immediately about after the rescue that the survivors had killed some of the others for food. On December 23rd, news reports of cannibalism were published worldwide except in Uruguay. On December 26th, two pictures taken by members of Cuerpo de Socorro Andino, or the Andean Relief Corps, of a half-eaten human leg were printed on the front page of two Chilean newspapers, El Mercurio and La Tercera de la Hora, uh, who reported that all the survivors had resorted to cannibalism. Now, I fucking hate this. Yeah, me too. Immediately. And notice, notice that not not Uruguay, that Uruguay didn't do that, right? Because in Ur- Uruguay, these people are heroes, right, for surviving this. And but you the rest be of, everywhere, right? But the rest <clears throat> of the world, because they're not part of them, immediately clung to the most easy to sensationalize part of the story. Right? They ate each other, mm-hmm. and that's all they printed. And I mean, it's, th- I'm sure it's not all they printed, yeah. But and even to this day, I mean. You know, we're kind of guilty of doing it. I don't but. think we are because we have given plenty of context and we were very upfront about the fact that every listener of this podcast, it, you can rationalize it. If you fucking need to, to live, you are a cannibal. It's not, you might become one. You are one right now. You just have never had a fucking human to eat. 
like you've never had to eat a human. Right. It's <clears throat> what kills me about the fact that they sensationalize that so much about their story is that there are dozens of similar stories where people have resorted to cannibalism because it's just something that you will do. That's actually the least interesting part about right. their survival story. But mm-hmm. I mean, even to this day, I agree, actually. This story is what the movie Alive was based on. I mm. fully forgot about the cannibalism as soon as we talk, started talking about mountain climbing. Right. right. And all the shit with the radio. And all that shit. But if you think about it, anytime somebody mentions the movie Alive, at first of all, everybody says it's a Peruvian soccer team, which it's not. It's rugby. Mm. But then it's it's always about the cannibalism aspect yeah. of it. It's not about the survival portion of it. Because Hollywood, that's all we care about yeah. for entertainment. But um, so the survivors held a press conference on December 28th at Stella Maris College in Montevideo, where they recounted their events of the past 72 days. Alfredo Delgado spoke for the survivors. He compared their actions to that of Jesus Christ at the Last Supper, during which he gave his disciples the Eucharist. The survivors received public backlash initially, but after they explained the pact the survivors had made to sacrifice their flesh if they died, to help the others survive, the outcry diminished, and the families, the, the, the families were more understanding. The survivors were not reviled and were largely considered heroes 40 years later. Goddamn right. Were, were considered heroes. 40 years later, they even got to play the match they never got to play oh. against the... Oh. Yeah. Against the, the former team. Oh, my God. The, yeah. That's so cool. A Catholic priest. <laughs> you said that with a question mark. I'm going to answer you. That's so cool. That's so cool. So a Catholic priest heard the survivors' confessions and told them they were not damned for cannibalism. Fucking it, read that again. <clears throat> they were not damned for can. Or a Catholic priest heard the survivors' confessions and told them that they were not damned for cannibalism. That's how fucking religion should work. Right. That's how your spiritual leader should handle that situation. Yes. Regardless of which God or gods you believe in or don't. That is something that they needed to hear. And even though, you know, a big part of me thinks that, like, I can't believe that's what's on your mind in this situation. Right. I understand why it is, but it's more than anything at this point. That's what they need to hear. I I feel like that would be the thing that I would be stuck on now that I'm alive. Like now that I am no longer a dead man. Exactly. I am alive now and I ate people and I now have to live with that Mm -hmm. because before I can just assume I'm not going to live. This is just a stay of execution. And eventually God will tell me I did bad and that's whatever. And now you have to live with the knowledge that you ate people you knew. Mm-hmm. Right. And like, yeah, I would fucking need somebody to tell me that I trusted and re- yeah. and and looked to for advice as a religious authority, effectively. a spiritual yeah. leader mm-hmm. or even like a therapist or something like that. Like sometimes you got to hear it because like you can tell yourself it all day. But if mm-hmm. you don't hear it from somebody that you respect, that doesn't mean a thing. Yeah. So the news of their survival and the actions required to live drew worldwide attention and grew into a media circus. The authorities and the victims' families decided to bury the remains near the site of the crash in a common grave. Thirteen bodies were untouched, while another 15 were mostly skeletal. Twelve men and a Chilean priest were transported to the crash site on January 18, 1973. Family members were not allowed to attend. 
they've dug a grave about. Uh, I feel conflicted about that because it is super dangerous territory. But like, also, why if a priest was able to go, was the family not? Because they're in such poor shape. Yeah. Probably the same reason that you don't have an open casket funeral for somebody who's been like burned or uh, stuff like that. Because uh, the frostbite, they they were probably not recognizable. Oh yeah, That's anymore. Um, as well as yes, some of them having been cut apart for the others to survive. Yeah. Plus, you got to think that now we're in January of in the southern hemisphere. It's full blown summer now, so I'm sure that the heat. I mean, yeah, okay, it's been, you know, it's still cold because you're up in the mountains, but it's not cold enough to keep those bodies from decomposing. No. I mean, they said that there were still 13 complete bodies. Yeah. So, but they buried the, they dug a grave about a quarter mile to half a mile from the aircraft fuselage at a site that they thought was safe from avalanche. Close to the grave, they built a simple stone altar and and stacked an orange iron cross on it. They placed a plaque on the pile of rocks inscribed the world to its Uruguayan brothers close. Oh God to you. They doused the remains of the fuselage in gasoline and set it alight. Eduardo Strouch later mentioned in his book out of the silence, that the bottom half of the fuselage, which was covered in snow was still untouched by the fire in his first 1995 visit. The father of one of the victims wow. had received word from a survivor that his son wished to be buried at home. Unable to obtain official permission to retrieve his son's body, Ricardo Echeverin mounted an expedition on his own with hired guides. He had prearranged with the priest who had buried his son to mark the bag containing his son's remains. Upon his return to the abandoned Hotel Termas with his son's remains, he was arrested for grave robbing. Wow. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Go fuck yourself on that one. A federal judge and the local mayor intervened to obtain his release, and Echeverin later obtained legal permission to bury his son. There you go. The survivor's courage under extremely adverse conditions has been described as a beacon of hope to their generation, showing what can be accomplished with persistence and determination in the presence of unsurpassable odds and set our minds to attain a common aim. The story of the crash described in the hashtag. Better together? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, what is it? Live together or die alone? Mm. The story of the crash is described in the Andes Museum, dedicated in 2013 in Ciudad Vieja, Montevideo. In 1973, mothers of the 11 young people who died in the plane crash founded the Our Children Library in Uruguay to promote reading and teaching. Family members of the victims of the flight founded the Vivian, which means Alive, Foundation in 2006 to preserve the legacy of the flight, memory of the victims, and support organ donation. The crash location attracts hundreds of people from all over the world who pay tribute to the victims and survivors and learn about how they survived. The trip to the location takes three days. Four-wheel drive vehicles transport travelers from the village of El Sosniedo to Puesto Area, near the abandoned Hotel Termas del Sassanato. From there, travelers ride on horseback, through, though some choose to walk. They stop overnight on the mountain at El Barrasco Camp. On the third day, they reach Las Lagrimas Glacier, uh, where they remain. the remains of the accident are found. In March of 2006, families of those aboard the flight had a black obelisk mount, uh, monument built at the crash site, memor- memorializing those who lived and died. 
In 2007, Chilean Ariello Sergio Catalan, who was the guy that found them, mm-hmm. or was interviewed on Chilean television during which he was reve- it was revealed that he had leg arthrosis. Canessa, who had become a doctor, and other survivors raised funds to pay for a hip replacement operation. Aww. Sergio Catalan died on February 11th, 2020, at the age of 91. Damn. Now, YouTube creator Caitlin Dotry. How's that for a fuck you to God, you know? Right. Like, yeah, I fucking made it and I went to 91. Bitch. No, that was the, no, the, pe- the people who survived raised funds for the guy. Oh, that guy died uh, at 91. Yeah. Oh, okay. okay, 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 okay. So, YouTube creator Caitlin Dotry, who hosts the Ask a Mortician YouTube channel. Oh, yeah. That's oh, a good yeah, one. I have heard of her. Devoted to breaking down the, the, the channels, devoted to breaking down the stigma of death and helping people realize that it is not a taboo subject, stated about the survivors and what they had to do in her video as follows. While every cannibalism story is unique, this cannibalism story strikes a very different tone than the Donner Party or the whale ship Essex. The survivors of this 1972 airplane crash were different in how they approached cannibalism. It was thoughtful, rational, sacred. Eating human flesh became their normal, allowing them to keep clear heads. And as far as disaster cannibalism stories go, this one is almost uplifting. It's a story of toxic positivity, the importance of social structures, and the controversial question in extreme situations. Do we actually honor their dead by eating them? The survivors had full lives, lives that have now been enriched and emboldened by their life alongside death. Said Nando, death liberated me. When he returned home, his father, who, remember, also lost his wife and daughter, uh, had, in his grief, gotten rid of all of Nando's things. Imagine this. Nando was one of the most famous men in South America, while simultaneously able to see how the world had gone on without him, as if he had died. He said, the realness of death stole my breath away, but at the same time, I burned more brightly with life than I had ever before. It was that moment, I, in that moment, I stopped running from death. Instead, I make every step a step toward true love, and that saved me. The lives of those 16 people were made possible by the fact that they chose to depend on their fellow man for survival and that they returned to a society, they, they, they returned to a society that didn't condemn them for it. Yeah. And that takes us out of the story. So they were rescued on what day? December 22nd and 23rd. December 22nd and 23rd. Yeah. We are, that for a fucking Christmas present? We yeah. are coming up on exactly the 50-year anniversary of that. Yep. Yeah, next year. Yeah. yeah. This year. Yeah. 72 to 22. This yeah. this year. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, for the accident. You're right. I'm sorry. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. In yep. just another month. It'll it'll be almost exactly 50 years. We didn't even we didn't even time that on purpose. No, we didn't. No. Um and this wasn't planned because it was our Thanksgiving. That was just a joke. No, yeah. No, 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 no. I swear, I swear. I, I didn't I, even fucking know we were doing a Thanksgiving episode. I if we're we're not. And that's that's the funniest it part. So, it just so happens this is the episode that's gonna air the week of oh, Thanksgiving. Oh, I see. Okay. Um <sighs> no no I would have I would have vetoed that if we were doing oh, 100%. That a joke, I would have been like, save it for Christmas. Like <laughs> <laughs> But um so yeah. Um I like this. It's, a, it's probably this is a good, this the is most good. heartwarming story we've done. Yeah, <laughs> I would say. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's like which means nobody will listen to it. True, <laughs> nobody <laughs> listens to the best episodes. Yeah, true. And like we we do, like man, our algorithms fucked. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, 
But it's it, this is really like it is one of those weirdly uplifting stories where yeah. you're like, huh? Yeah. Well then, I suppose let's go get at it then. Yeah. It's just amazing what people can can do when there's nothing left to do. To do. Yeah. Right. Well, it's you run Not out even, of sorry. you run out of things that you could rationalize in your daily life. Yeah. And you find out what you are actually capable of. There's this trend, I think, where a lot of people from older generations think of the younger generations as soft or like they couldn't survive in a survival situation like that. Mm -hmm. And the fact of the matter is that when you are legitimately in that survival situation, you can. You're literally adapted to fucking take this planet and bend it to your will. Right. right. That like, is what we are made to do. We as human animals. We fucking built ourselves into the perfect dominator of this goddamn globe. Yes. Don't don't forget that we are also the product of evolution. You are the apex predator. Not right. an, the. Yes. Like no contest. Right. It's like we often forget that, I think, because of how cushy for the most part modern life is compared to a survival situation like that like yes our survival situation now is largely against the horrific way that society treats us yeah um and we're surviving against that now which is a different kind of survival but it's also you know it's different when all you have is an eight foot long fuselage right I yeah. mean, there's been other stuff, like, what is that movie, 127 Hours or something like that? Yeah. Mm-hmm. About the guy who cut his own arm off? Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's another- a good Jogo Lee one. Yeah. And then there was another movie I saw, which based on a true story, is kind of like a documentary slash, like, fiction, not fictionalized, but like a reenactment kind of thing. It's called Over the Ledge or Over the Edge. I can't remember mm-hmm. exactly. It was about a guy, two guys went mountain climbing, and something happened and one of the guys fell. And... You know, they were attached to each other, and it got to the point that if the other guy didn't cut him loose, he was going to die as well. So yeah. he had to cut his friend loose. His fin- friend fell, ended up breaking his leg, mm-hmm. but didn't die. Right. So now he was in the mountains alone with a broken leg, and he managed to get himself out. Yeah. And survive with a broken leg walking through the mountains. Yeah. So fuck it's an amazing movie. I just I can't remember the exact it's, name of it. I guess the the big like to to boil it down what I really want to say about this like what what this leaves me feeling is don't underestimate yourself. Because when it comes down to it, you are capable of so much more than you realize. The Joey Coco Diaz is a really good stand-up comedian. He is super vulgar, so like if you're not into that, oh yeah, yeah, I know Joey Diaz. Yeah, yeah, he's fucking great. He has a line that I love about humans, where he's like, "I don't need a whole bunch of friends. You give me two other motherfuckers, real motherfuckers, and we can take over the planet." And that's not just true profoundly and metaphorically. That is true literally. Yeah. You like when I say you're the apex predator, I don't mean by a little bit. I mean look at us. We built cities and we are killing the fucking planet itself. If we can do that, we can do 
literally anything, including fix it. Like, right. yes, you, you don't underestimate yourself because the people who are destroying the planet don't underrate, don't do it to themselves. Like as you you brought that back around to a wholesome place too. Listen, <laughs> we we as human beings were capable of destroying our planet, and we are in fact capable of literally anything, including fixing it. I like that a lot. I yeah, never thought of it that way. Yes, all it requires is for the people who want to fix it to believe in themselves exactly as hard, if not harder, than the people who are destroying it. It's wild That's that all. we got to this topic um, after what is always just billed as a pure cannibalism story. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Fuck that. Dominate the world, but for good. <laughs> yes. So we're going to actually, I'm going to do this. I'm going to put out a call to action to our listeners. Uh, yeah. When you follow our face, I know you follow us on Facebook. Oh my God, I just found my goddamn closer. <laughs> um, what we want you to do, put yourself in that position. Could you bring yourself to do it. What would it take for you to survive in a situation like that? Would you be able to? Um, and to, as a person whose life is falling apart in his hands, is it worse than that? Because no, it isn't. If those people can survive in that situation, you have what it takes to survive in yours. Exactly. Yeah. Yep. Just remember there's always somebody that has it worse. Just may not seem like that's it. not what I even mean, dude. No, that's not quite the message. No, well, I know. I mean, I it's know. like it could be worse. I guess I should say. No, it's more like you could handle worse. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yes. It, you you, you could handle worse. Christians would say something to the effect of God never gives you more than you can handle. Fuck that. <laughs> Give me what you got, bitch, because I'm gonna come for you. Like. <laughs> but uh, so, anyways, always or as always, uh, follow us on Facebook. Facebook dash. Oh my god, I've talked so much on You know the dead. ones. You know the Facebook. ones. Facebook.com slash DTO. They're in the description. We have a Patreon if you could financially support us. Uh Facebook or Patreon.com slash two towns over. You have to put that in the search engine. because uh, it will not uh yeah. We're explicit. We're explicit. So you can't search us on Patreon. You have to either go through Google or actually type it in the address bar. We have an audible link, audibletrial.com slash TTO pod. Um all links are going to be in the description. Uh, probably a book about the story on Oh, Audible. I'm sure. Yeah. I'm sure there's a book about this. For some reason, it made me think of Trevor Noah's autobiography. What, Born a Crime? or Yeah. Hmm? Read by the author, Trevor Noah. Hey, there you go. Hmm. I'm not familiar with the story, so it sounds his, very strange to me. At one point, his mother gets shot in the head by his, I want to say, father and or stepfather and or something like that. And she lives. Wild. Yeah. So, like that, I guess, is what did it. If my math is correct. It isn't. It probably isn't. Uh, Six weeks from now, you will be hearing the first episode of our Satanic Panic series. Yeah, you fucking will. Y'all get get as hype as I am for this. Because it's so, it's mm, going (laughs) to be so good. Um, If you're interested, probably what we're going to do, if we're able to record any of these episodes earlier... Uh, to kind of give us a, a head start and a, a break somewhere. As we record them, we will release them to the patrons, whether it's the week they're released normally or not. Um, Just as soon as they can as be soon edited. As they can be edited. Um, so, and I think probably within the next couple of weeks, we'll probably do some of the smaller ones. Yeah. Um, just to get like maybe a couple 
episodes in so just we can to start just start really dipping our toes into the panic you know yeah there we go we're gonna get all we're just gonna, gonna get a little scary we gotta get, we gotta get a little panic we're gonna get we... we're gonna get like um <laughs> Beelzebub, uh, Beelzebub goosebumps or something there you go. <laughs> like bumps. Um, yeah Beelzebumps there it is Thank if you. if you would like to hear our other episodes about cannibalism uh we have the Joe Metheny murders which was uh unknown cannibalism yeah. Always one of the fun ones. Underrated episode. Underrated. Underrated uh, episode. We also have the Wendigo, uh, which talks about cannibalism. And Native American culture. Yes. And also the whaling ship Essex that featured our lovely cat, who we miss. And also ghosts. In and ghosts. One, I think. No, there was no ghosts. Was it not ghosts? I thought it was like ghosts, like a ghost ship. No. That was the whale that destroyed the ship, and they were all in lifeboats. for. Yeah, but I meant for the, the one, the, 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 the myth... That we did with that one was a ghost ship, I think. I might be wrong. Go prove me wrong. I, we definitely talked about ghosts and water at some point. No, it was the Kraken. Ah, that's yeah. right. Yes. Holy crap! There's so we're at like this is. <laughs> uh, we have 102 episodes already uploaded. We just recorded two more, and just trying to remember them all. So we it's been a year. It's been over a year. Yeah. We have been here for a little longer than a year. Yeah, we survived. Take that, all you naysaying motherfuckers! Right, our podcast can yes. survive. There we go. In every survival situation, <laughs> and it will, unless an avalanche. Yeah, that's than, an avalanche might kill our podcast. Other than that, yeah. If there's an avalanche here in Florida, actually, an avalanche of likes would actually uplift our. No, podcast. yeah. As a matter so of let, fact, let's go yeah. do that. Give us ratings, all that shit. They hit our podcast with an avalanche, a hundred percent, so and, it can survive. <laughs> and we are hoping in the near future that we will be able to refer to ourselves as certified, renowned demonologists. Well, certified first, renowned later. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> We're going to kick the doors down to the Warren's Occult Museum and say, this is all fake. And I'm it's gonna, all I'm thanks gonna... to promo code BOO40. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> on that note, uh, fuck cancer. <laughs> Be good to yourselves. And never forget, you are the apex predator. Bye, guys. Bye.